Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of Pittsburgh in World War I, Elizabeth Williams. Elizabeth Williams, author of Pittsburgh in World War I, Arsenal of the Allies. Why did you pick this as a topic for a book? Well, in the neighborhood that I grew up in, I grew up in the Greenfield section of Pittsburgh, there's this war monument, and it's actually to the um, men and women who served in World War I and World War II. And I stopped to take a look at it. I was in graduate school at the time, and I stopped to actually take a look at it for the first time in my entire life. And I thought, well, that's really interesting that they would do World War I because nobody ever talks about World War I in Pittsburgh's weren't ruling it. It must have been really important to the people at the time. Let me find a book on it. Well, there wasn't one. So I'm like, well, you know what? Let me see if there's a story. Because if there's a story, I can write it myself. Now, what made you think you could write it yourself? I have always loved history since I was a little girl, and I've always loved local history. When I was in second grade, we could do a report on anything we wanted. It was my very first report. I went home to my parents and I said, I want to write about the history of Pittsburgh. So this has always been a major, Pittsburgh is a major part of me and my story. And I've always loved writing. And I, throughout the course of my life, I got the tools necessary through high school and college and graduate school where I thought I was ready and able to write a book. When you decided to sit down, is this your first book? Yes. So when you decided to sit down and write it, where did you find all the information? I started um, online. You know, I searched all the terms that I could possibly think would relate to it, and that got me some information that found me books that had been written in the 1920s when World War I was still a big deal in the city. Like, the Red Cross wrote their own book about their contributions to World War I, and that was just the Pittsburgh chapter. And so there had been a lot written before in a lot of newspaper articles. You know, I spent a lot of time in front of the microphone machines. And so I just gathered all this information, and I went to the History Center and Soldiers and Sailors, and I realized that there was a story. And as I gathered more, I found different things to search, but the internet was really where I got started. How often did you come across a, oh wow, I didn't know that moment? A lot. I would say most of what's in my book, I didn't know before I started to write. Now, um, if you walked around the streets of Pittsburgh in the, the, those early years of the war, 1914, what would this city have been like? You would have seen it, especially after um, Westinghouse fulfilled the contract, now Westinghouse wasn't a munitions company and England asked them to make munitions. Westinghouse accepted the contract, figuring they could figure it out, and they did. Within 45 days, they had fulfilled the order. And we kept getting requests, not only Westinghouse, but a number of Pittsburgh companies. Pittsburgh Steel was, and other products were really all along the battlefield even before America entered the war. 
1914, 1915, you would have seen a city bustling with industry. 500,000 Pittsburghers were already employed in war work by 1917. And you would have also started to see some dissension. Like the German citizens of Pittsburgh, we had a very large German-American community, and some of them were um, second or third generation, but they lived in German neighborhoods. They spoke German, and you know they still had they felt ties to the fatherland. A lot of them were engaged in war work from the very beginning, but that didn't stop them from when they got home supporting Germany with all of their hearts. They wanted America to enter on Germany's side or at least stay neutral. And they even held um, fundraisers for war relief for the German and uh, Austro-Hungarian empires. Your book starts off with a chapter on the Red Cross in Pittsburgh in the First World War. Why did you start off that way? Because I felt like it was a, that was the chapter I actually wrote first. And I always had it in my head that this needed to be first because this is, I thought that the Red Cross was exceptionally impressive, perhaps even more impressive, like our industrial side was really impressive. But the Red Cross, I mean, we went from, in Pittsburgh, it went from being barely staffed and absolutely nothing to being the largest chapter in America within a month. And I thought that that was really impressive and the work that they did was incredibly impressive. And I wanted to show different sides other than industry. What kind of work did they do? I, uh, they worked with the appellant board um, and they helped immigrants understand their draft notices and help them even sometimes get out of the war or even if they had to go to war, men who couldn't read and didn't understand, they helped represent them in Allegheny County. And they also um, held knitting drives, which I thought were very interesting, where women would basically buy their own yarn and follow Red Cross patterns and donate it back so that the men from Pittsburgh on the battle, um, on the war front could get sweaters. And that caused a big problem because they didn't, Supply demand far outstretched the, the supply of sweaters, so women were getting letters from their sons, husbands, brothers, saying, I don't have a sweater, I'm really cold over in France. And this caused a little bit of tension, so the Red Cross decided to start giving out sweaters before they even left Pittsburgh, so that they'd make sure that they had them. Um, they also worked with local children. Every um, school in the city of Pittsburgh was an auxiliary, a junior Red Cross auxiliary. And these kids were taught how to obey the US government food regulations. They were taught school garden. They were taught sacrifice. They made things for war refugees. They made things for soldiers on the battlefront. So they did a lot of really interesting and a lot of really good work here. Any of the Red Cross volunteers go overseas? Yes. What they do over there? Nursing mostly. Um, were, did women get involved in the uh, industry and working in the manufacturing plants like they did during World War II? Yes. Uh, actually, on my book cover, there's a picture of a Westinghouse worker, um, a woman Westinghouse worker filling a grenade. So women did, not on the scale of World War II, but women did get involved. And it actually caused problems sometimes because a lot of... Um, 
women who were in lower wage positions, like serving girls, left for the factories. And so um, it caused problems because, like, the Red Cross collected certain things that needed laundered before being sent to the national headquarters. Nobody knew how to do laundry because the wealthier women in the Red Cross never had to do it, and all the serving girls were working in the factories. So was there a shortage of, a labor shortage that caused them to need hire women in the factories? There was a, yes, there was a bit of a labor shortage because a lot of the men did go overseas and they sent letters home encouraging other men to go overseas, which were published in the newspaper. And there were a labor shortage among um, male occupations all over Pittsburgh, not just in the factories, but also police and firemen left their jobs and they either went overseas or they went to the factories, which paid more. When did the Army start drafting people for the war? 1917. Did they draft a lot of them? Yes. Uh, there was a lot of drafts and there were a lot of men who um, were gripped with a very patriotic fever and they did enlist. And some of them, um, including one of my favorite stories is um, William Thaw, who actually didn't enlist in 1917. He, um, he was very wealthy. He came from a very wealthy family. In 1914, he dropped out of Yale. Or 1913, 1914, he dropped out of Yale and convinced his father to buy him a hydroplane. And he flew around the country offering rides his brother Alex invented an automatic stabilizer that was entered into a French contest. So William, Alex, um, and his mother and his sister went to France, and that's when the war broke out in June of 1914. William sent his mother and his brother and his sister home, and he donated his plane to France, and he wanted to be in the he wanted to be in the French aviation service. The French we're not about to accept this upstart American kid who was willing to ignore his own, his own country's neutrality in order to enter the war. So they told him no. They took his plane, but they told him no. And so he joined the French Foreign Legion, and he did well in the French Foreign Legion, but it was, he considered it really boring. Dodging cars on Broadway in New York was much more exciting than being shot at. And so he heard that an acquaintance of his, a Lieutenant Brocard, I believe, was stationed in a town near him. So he went AWOL, and he, him and a couple of his buddies went to Lieutenant Brocard, and they begged to be part of the French Aviation Service. So in December of 1914, Thaw became the first American who um, was accepted into the French Aviation Service. That was the Lafayette Escadrille? Mm-hmm. How many missions did he fly? What, what, what was the job like? He flew on a number of missions and he won a number of citations not only from the French government but later from the American government when the American, um, when America entered the war, the Lafayette squadron was transferred under American command. Did he survive the war? Yes. His brother did not. Alexander joined the war when he turned 18 and America had entered. And his brother was killed um, on a flyby mission. And he just got really unlucky because Alexander died. But his passengers survived and so did his dog. Alexander's plane had a special seat for his dog and the dog did survive. 
What about uh, labor unions? What kind of role did labor unions have at the time? Labor unions were a funny sort of business in Pittsburgh, and there was always sort of a, there's always been a sort of love-hate relationship with the labor unions. And, you know, my grandfather was a steelworker, and he always said they did a lot of good work before they overstepped. You know, but at the time, 1916, 1917, labor unions were just starting. And in 1916, there were a number of strikes, like the big Westinghouse strike of 1916 um, that turned into, it came really close to turning into a general strike. And after the war, it's really interesting because labor unions, after the Americans entered the war, labor unions really, they couldn't do a whole lot. They didn't have a whole lot of power because it was illegal to strike. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you did, like in 1917, J&L workers stroke, uh, went on strike, and they were branded as unpatriotic, almost treasonous. The president supported them, but it very well could have gone a different way, and the president sent negotiators in to make sure they got back to work. How did, it, how did industry change when the U.S. entered the war, 1917? We had to make more and we had to start recruiting more people to our factories because now the American government wanted supplies too. And we had to sort of prioritize who got what first and how do we, like factories were open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they were constantly staffed and people were just constantly changing out. Making a lot of money? Yes. Pittsburgh companies became very, very rich because of the war. What were the newspaper articles like? What, what, what's it like reading them? How, how was the war reported? Very dramatically. One of the things that I love most about this time period is everything was very intense and very, very dramatic. It wasn't World War I, or it wasn't the World War. It was the war to end all wars, a fight for democracy against barbarism. And so it was reported very dramatically and very much, you know, pro-American. Did we tell me about Mary Reinhard? Yes. She was um, the American Agatha Christie, is what she was known as, even though she started writing before Agatha Christie. She was a Pittsburgh girl who wrote mystery novels. And she wrote, um, public, was published in the Saturday Evening Post before, you know, the, her books were actually bound and published, which was very common at the time, publishing snippets in the Saturday Evening Post. When the war broke out in 1914, she decided it would be, she was a mother of three, and she decided it would be great fun to go over and be a war correspondent. Her husband disagreed, but she eventually got him to relent, and she was shipped over to London to report for the Saturday Evening Post. Now, getting to London to be a war correspondent didn't mean you'd actually get to be one. It just meant that you'd have a shot. But she managed to convince, uh, she met the head of the Belgian Red Cross, and she managed to convince him that since she was a nurse, she could really give Americans a great point of view that male reporters couldn't. And she ended up being one of the first Americans um, behind British lines, and she was one of the first, she was the first woman to enter the no man's land behind American and British lines. She was the first American to interview the Queen of England, um, the King of Belgium she had an interview with, 
and she was, she did a lot of first and she was really cool and she intended to write articles to keep America out of the war when she arrived. What she saw in Europe made her very, very staunchly pro-war and very staunchly that America needed to enter and we needed to liberate Europe. Were you able to find articles that she wrote? Yes. How do they read? Very, I mean, she was a very gifted writer and she really knew how to tug on her readers' heartstrings. The one that I quote was um, The Altar of Freedom, which was one of her most famous war articles. And it basically, she said, I'm a woman, I cannot go over and die for my country, but I'm giving my son to the war. And I feel like American mothers, it's gonna be hard, but we need to pull together and we need to support the men, they need to go and do this because mothers are losing their sons. Well, will you tell the story about the, um, the testing of the gas mask? You write about a fellow by the name of uh, Clayton who was willing to be the first person to test this new type of gas mask? Yes. Uh, James Garner at the Mellon Institute, I believe, was working on how uh, different types of solvents that could um, absorb gas because of the coal mines in the area actually and when he found out that the Germans were using gas as an attack he started working on a way to make it into a mask and his wife designed the first masks and he Garner and his assistant Clayton were very sure that the science held up but that's one thing and Garner from newspaper reports managed to figure out what he managed to guess what types of gases the Germans were using so that they could really test it and you know the science was sound but that's one thing to think that the science is sound in theory it's another thing to sit in a room that's being pumped full of poisonous gas and trust your life to the gas mask and his assistant volunteered to do this how'd it turn out ah uh, the gas mask worked he survived and the British government ordered a bunch. Was there any evidence of spying or, or sabotage going on in the factories at the time? That was always the biggest fear, especially given the Germans worked in the factories. And very early on, the companies attempted to root out as much of that as possible. So it, there were spies that were arrested, but whether or not they were actually doing anything is of course always up for debate. Um, one spy was arrested in Chicago, and he definitely did have factory blueprints. But the idea that the Germans would infiltrate and the Germans would spy was such prevalent fear, I actually found a children's novel dedicated to um, what happened, you know, after the Germans managed to take over the country and the last stand at Pittsburgh because of German spying. So it was a very real fear. Would you uh, tell the story about the 351st Field Artillery? The 351st um, was an African-American unit in the war that really should never have existed. They were a bunch of African-Americans from Pittsburgh who had enlisted in the war and they had dreams like everybody else who enlisted or a lot of other people who enlisted of fighting for freedom and democracy over in Europe. When they got to camps, they found out a number of them were well-educated, 
some of them even Ivy League educated men. They got to um, their camp and they found out that they were going to be stevedores and they were basically going to dig trenches and do the manual labor. And they didn't think that was very fair. They thought that, you know, they were as smart or smarter than a lot of the white men who were able to um, have more of a prominent role in the war. And, you know, they wanted to see action just as much as anybody else. So they wrote letters back home, and Pittsburgh had a very old um, African-American community, which was very well established in the Pittsburgh Courier. And so the, these men and women, a lot of the time, were so angry that the boys that they had sent off to war were being treated like that, they went to the U.S. government. And it's important to note that the men who wrote the letters back, in, back to Pittsburgh to try and get help, they could have been court-martialed. Instead of being court-martialed, the U.S. government um, had them form the 351st Field Artillery Unit, and they were sent down to Georgia, and a couple of them even got officer training. And they were so well-liked by generals and those above them that when they went to recruit, they asked the men, you know, where in Pittsburgh can we go to recruit more for this unit? Because you guys are such a great example of what African-American men can do. I'll read you this. The, uh, they left for France June 1918, but they had a, a commanding officer, Colonel Wade Carpenter. And he, in civilian life, was a Mississippi plantation owner. And he said to his men, you are all liars and thieves, but you can't help that. Your ancestors before you, as always, had to steal food and lie for each other to live, avoid punishment or death. It's in your blood and you can't help it. And he was put in charge of the African-American Yes, unit. because that seemed like a really great idea. <laughs> and in reality, you know, in the U.S. government's defense, and a couple of the sources even brought this out, they were so scrambling they were putting anybody anywhere. They weren't really checking on qualification. And they even managed to um, change that man's mind by the end of the war. Well, how, what did they do in Europe? Not much. By the time they got to Europe, the war was pretty much over. They fought in a couple of skirmishes. but. And, and there was, you also write about a gentleman by the name of Bill Enright. It was the first... Um, Gentleman from Pittsburgh killed in the war? Yes, Thomas Enright. Thomas Enright, sorry. Yes. Um, Enright was born to an Irish working class family. He was their first, his parents' first child born in America, and he was, I think, one of seven. And he had actually joined the army um, before the war, a long time before the war, and he'd already served a tour by 1916. By 1916, when he was done with his service in Mexico, he came home and he looked around and he thought he could maybe enter the back-breaking life in the factory or he could try his luck and re-enlist. So he decided to re-enlist in 1916. And it was very clear at that point the U.S. was going to war. His, um, he enlisted in the cavalry, and 
No, he enlisted in the infantry. I'm sorry. He was a cavalry member in Mex in Veracruz. He, his unit was among the first sent over to France, first American sent over to France, and they relieved the, um, and shortly after getting there, they relieved French troops in near Nancy. What the Americans didn't know was that they had been betrayed. There was a French deserter who had told the Germans their location. And so, um, that night, the shelling, the Germans started shelling them. And the shelling lasted for 45 minutes. What the Americans didn't know is there were German soldiers crawling underneath the shelling. And so when the shelling stopped, about 20 Americans were faced with 200 German troops. And it really didn't end well for the Americans. They'd never faced war like this before. And the raid lasted, the Beltmoth raid, which is what it became known as, lasted about 20 minutes on total. And a number of Americans had been captured. Um, some were, and three were dead, including Thomas Enright, who was, there's of course always gonna be debate because nobody knows who was killed first, but um, Pittsburghers like to say that Thomas Enright was the first killed and he was a martyr for democracy. And it was General Pershing made the decision that he didn't want during the war Americans to see caskets draped with flags coming home. So he had them buried in France with high honors. And later, and, and Wright's body didn't return to Pittsburgh until 1921. But it's really interesting to see even a few years, because the war ended in 1918, a few years later, how attached Pittsburghers still were to the war and everything that had been sacrificed. Enright's body was laid in state in Soldiers and Sailors Memorial Hall, and thousands filed past his casket to pay their respects to this murder for democracy, one of the first men who died. And he was buried um, out of the cathedral, and the mayor of the city of Pittsburgh encouraged Mayor Babcock encouraged everybody who could attend, who could get off work, to go to the funeral, and there was an overflow crowd. When the war ended, were there big celebrations? Was there a, like a major end of the war parade in Pittsburgh? Yes. Pittsburgh, well, we have always loved our parades, and as soon as the armistice was announced, people poured out into the streets, especially in downtown Pittsburgh and even in some of the neighborhoods in celebration. There was crying, there was ticker tape, and they were just so happy that the war was over. And as every unit of people came back, we had another parade for them to celebrate them. So uh, this is your first book? Yes. You think you'll try it again? Yes, I already have ideas. And I'm actually going to be published in um, Supernatural Lore of Pennsylvania. What is that? It's a book that my um, for former boss at Duquesne University, Tom White is editing, and I've written a chapter on haunted libraries of haunted Pennsylvania. Libraries. And I think that my next book is going to be Prohibition in Pittsburgh if I can find enough of a story. Well, this is the cover of the book we've been talking about, Pittsburgh in World War I, Arsenal of the Allies. Elizabeth Williams, thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN 
the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.